Hey, Three Crosses family. This is Pastor AJ. I oversee life groups and discipleship here at Three Crosses. And today we are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom Codes. We're looking at verses 13 to 16 today, talking about salt and light. We got an awesome conversation ahead. And so with that, let's go deeper. Joining us to continue our series on the kingdom codes found on the Sermon on the Mount is Pastor Danny. Pastor Danny, welcome to round two of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm glad to be back. I'm excited to talk more about this next section. This conversation is going to get a little salty. Okay, but, uh, here we go. <laughs> uh, as you guys know, we always ask about context, but we went through context uh, at a large scale in Matthew last episode. So as we continue to go through bit by bit the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I just want to use this opportunity at, at first to recap where we've been and how that informs what we're about to read. So, Pastor Danny, where have we been on this journey through the Sermon on the Mount? I know we've only had one sermon on it, so hopefully you listened. And uh, yeah, where have we been and how does that inform us as uh, to what we're about to read? Yeah, we need to remember that Jesus is preaching a literal sermon on a literal mount and a literal place to literal people. And we get a glimpse into all of that in Matthew chapter 4, where we see that Jesus is in Galilee, and he's doing a ton of healing and serving people who are on the margins of society, and people are beginning to flock to him for healing and for help. And in the midst of that, Jesus sees these crowds. He goes up on this mountain, which most likely is on the northern bank of the Sea of Galilee, just kind of a hill that ebbs up away from the water where you can kind of look over the water and calls his disciples to himself as he stands like on a level place in the middle of this mountain. And all the crowds are probably within listening distance, but he's directing the sermon to his disciples as these other li- others listen on. And he starts by talking about how God has blessing for those who are in the margins of society. And so last week we talked about the blessed life, how Jesus describes it. And now he continues to talk kind of to that dual audience about uh, the power that we have as his people, as we carry his light, as we carry his presence into the world. And so that's where we are in 5, 13 through 16. And you would expect out of Jesus's mouth is like, okay, now that you're blessed and you understand this, here's the playbook, X, Y, Z. But the first thing that comes out of his mouth is a statement about who we are as followers of Jesus. And, and so the verse 13 here, it says simply, you are the salt of the earth. Now, a lot, of com- a lot comes to mind in our modern context of salt. I think of a popular character around these days. This guy, guy named Salt Bay. Oh, the guy with the steaks? <laughs> the guy with the steaks. I guess, and I'm like, doing the hand motion. Yeah. Too, yeah. <laughs> he sprinkles the salt off of his off elbow. Off his elbow. And, it's such a yeah. weird... Have you seen- <laughs> Yeah, there's all these like fake salt bays like internationally right. and they're even more awkward than him. I mean, he's an awkward dude, but okay, yeah, there's him. So there's this this idea that we have a good idea of what salt is. We we know the chemical compound, we've seen it under a microscope. And yet when we rewind to the 1st century, um maybe this word meant something different. Did did people imagine sprinkling salt like how do you, as a pastor, when you, when you um, dive into a text like this, how do you get a better feel of what salt would have meant to that original audience listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? 
Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, a lot of times when you do interpretation in the Bible, the first place you start is looking at its immediate context. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, one thing that we'll notice over and over again is that Jesus draws imagery from his surroundings, right? Consider the lilies of the field, or, uh, you know, you just picture him pointing at rocks. You can picture him pointing at animals, pointing at different things around him in the in, in that mm-hmm. immediate context. You know, if you ever go to Israel, go to Galilee, go to Capernaum, stand in the spot where likely Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and you read it, you're like, oh, he was probably just gesturing at stuff <laughs> while he was talking. And so right. when I was thinking about salt, I started there. I'm looking, Jesus is right there by the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee was most likely not a place where they'd gather a lot of salt, but seas were, you know, so, you know, I don't know how many miles, 60, 80 miles? How far is the Dead Sea from the Sea of Galilee? Mm, not sure. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty far. south, yeah. uh, you know, a few days walk south. I don't know how, you know, right. we drove in a day. Uh, there's this Dead Sea where they might harvest a lot of salt. Um, you know, salt would come from salty lakes or salty seas like the Mediterranean. And so I, I picture these people standing on the shores of Galilee and the first thing they'd probably imagine is more the Dead Sea when they hear the word salt and the way that it's taken up off of the sand near the right. near the water and then harvested and used. And so then we look into how is salt used in the first century. And there's a ton of places you can look. Um, commentaries, I'll talk about it. Even if you have a study Bible, I'm sure it tells you some of these things. The most common ones are preservative or flavor, kind of like how we cure meats or we the salt bay adds the salt to the meat to make it <laughs> pop or Emerald says bam and he throws it in the cage and spices. Uh, and, and yet there's a ton of other uses for salt in that time. So that's where I start. It's just how would the people experience it in that moment? And then after the salt leaves the Dead Sea shores, what would they do with it? Um, what would they understand Jesus' phrase as meaning? And I know there's a lot of different commentators that have pointed out different things. And, you know, one of the beautiful things is like intertextuality, where you get to explore different texts that reference salt. And so a couple of them, I mean, I was thinking of Elisha when he goes out to the waters and says, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water because he put salt into it. And that's in Second Kings chapter two. Or you see in Numbers, like the covenant gets referred to as a covenant of salt, Uh, Or even in Leviticus, it talks about the offerings being seasoned with salt because of the salt of the covenant. So there's a lot going on. And so um, I know we kind of went down a rabbit hole off air of what this salt could mean. Uh, Could you give us a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, the most common ones I mentioned, preservative, flavoring, uh, we found... You know, there's some indication that salt was used in in cooking fuel uh, for for meats, and so they would salt fires, which does have a little bit of an overlap with what Jesus says in Matthew five that they would use the salt to kind of keep the coals hotter and hotter, and eventually, uh, and then the coals were. A lot of times they were cooking, we see this in the Old Testament too, cooking over like cow pies and things like that, right? (laughs) And so uh, this idea of like salt mixed with the dung heap, Luke says, is something that kind of overlaps. So we kind of geeked out on that a little bit. Uh, You found, tell us what you found. What was the, (laughs) tell us the century, tell us the author. Yeah, I was digging into some commentaries in preparation for this salty podcast. And um, I found a first century historian, and that's another way to figure out the context of the situation is look at the people who were writing during that time, and uh, this guy named Pliny the Elder. 
You may have heard of Pliny the Elder from the famous uh, brewery, Russian River Brewery. And uh, this is not that. Yeah. This is the, the d- actual same Pliny the Elder, but yes, this is <laughs> his actual writings. Yeah, this is his writings, and he was a. He essentially he he wrote books on nature, observing them, and he just wrote down what salt is good for. There's around five different chapters of him describing that salt is good for the eyes. It was used to, to treat wrinkles. It was used on the abdomen of women after childbirth. And, and then some wild ones, you know, I was, I was struck by, um, it says, the teeth, it is said, will never become carious or corroded if a person every morning puts some salt beneath his tongue, this is a good fasting, tip. and leaves it there until it is melted. Could you imagine? And then it's there like was, the baking soda of their day. <laughs> yeah, it was another one saying, to bites inflicted by the crocodile, salt is applied. Salt? I thought that was epic. Rubbing salt <laughs> in the wound. Rubbing salt in the wound. And it made me think of, you know, I've had cuts in my mouth and the prescription is get some water, yeah, get gargle some salt, salt water, gargle all that. it down. And so there's, there's a lot more like healing components. And, you know, I think there was this one quote that commentators pointed to is like, we may then conclude that the higher enjoyments of life could not exist without the use of salt. Indeed, so highly necessary is the substance to mankind that the pleasures of the mind even can be expressed by no better term than the word salt. And that's my favorite of all the Pliny sayings. That's my favorite one. The the pleasures of the mind kind of you know, out of the overflow of the mind, Pliny might say, you know, our mouth speaks. And he talks about wit and right. this idea that when we speak with humor and, you know, we're thinking about some pleasurable things and we start sharing those things and it's fun, a jovial conversation, it's a salty conversation. So I think of when Paul says, let your conversation always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. I wonder if it's a callback to, not necessarily to Pliny the Elder, but the same kind of concept that was believed in that day that salty speech is not like salty speech today, but salty speech (laughs) is uh, like good humor, just good, like edifying, just pleasurable conversation. And there are so many different uses of salt in those days and in these days that you kind of feel like what Jesus is really saying is like, you are a useful people. Right? Yeah, <laughs> That's what we yeah. said on Sunday. Like there's thousand uses. You are the, right. If you saw that big fat Greek wedding movie where they use Windex on everything, right. Mm-hmm. You are the Windex <laughs> of the earth. You know, there are so many uses. You are a good thing. Right. But at the same time, what we draw out is like, there are a lot of other good things. Like he could say, you are the I don't know, like the stake of the earth or something, right? <laughs> but salt is unassuming, it's small, it's ubiquitous, but it's very useful. And so I feel like part of what we have to map this interpretation onto is the verses we just studied last week, the Beatitudes, and realize that Jesus is saying, you are small, you are powerless, you are seemingly insignificant, but not only are you blessed last week, but you are useful and powerful this week. Mm. So... We got a good picture, and I love how we can draw from different resources, including, like you said, the closest context, and we can kind of zoom out, see different intertextual contexts, see different writers within the first century commentary on salt. And so we have this beautiful picture of, of salt being like this useful material that can be just, it's, it's almost like a, a wild card of, a, of an element. And, and it leads to the next line, because it gets kind of interesting here. The, the situation arises based on the salt. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And that completes verse 13. And what, what people have been confused by is how does salt, which chemically is, is a pretty stable uh, compound, like how does sodium chloride salt lose its saltiness? Is there a hint that, okay, if he's trying to establish an identity right out of the gate, is there a possibility that we could lose that identity in the kingdom? Or even worse, is, there a pos- is this hinting that I could lose my salvation? I'm no longer good for anything except, except for being thrown out and trampled underfoot. You could see how there's maybe an implication of, of judgment there. Like mm-hmm. what's going on with this losing of saltiness? Yeah, I wonder what, how people would have experienced that in the moment when he says right. that. Like I, I can imagine on one hand, he says, if, a, if the salt loses its saltiness and everyone laughs because it's like, Salt cannot be unsalty. Like salt is just, that's what it is, right? You could mix salt with water and the water becomes super salty, right? You can mix water with dirt. It's still super salty, right? It's like, it doesn't lose its saltiness no matter what. Um, But as he continues and talks about it's no longer good for everything, anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men, then I think that probably would crystallize in their minds what he's actually talking about. Because Mm. I I would assume that, you know, obviously, there's, we use that today, right? If you're going to go and go to Tahoe and there's snow on the roads, they're going to go and salt the roads. They have, if you drive past like Truckee and they see, you see these giant piles of salt, oh, yeah. they don't need to keep those giant piles of salt pure, clean, free from the elements, bugs, dirt. It doesn't matter. It's road salt, right? <laughs> it's not like right. salt bay salt. So it's, <laughs> I do think Jesus is kind of changing that picture of like, we're, we're picturing a jar of salt that someone might put on their meat or use to like cure some foods. And now you're picturing throw it out in the road salt. And you're like, oh, right. okay. So Jesus is talking about a transition that salt makes from the pure kind of salt that ha- can be used in every use. You stick it under your tongue and whiten your teeth to the salt that you really don't care about anymore. And you know, you're not going to put it under your tongue. You're not going to put it right. on your food. You're not yeah. going to rub it on your like fish to keep it cured, but you'll put it on the street, right? <laughs> because it's still got a use. It's still salty and salt can still be used. And so I don't think he's talking, I think he chooses this analogy intentionally. It's, he's not talking about becoming unsalt, like becoming an unchristian right. or a non-Christian, but I think most commentators, and I would say that He's talking about there is a condition where Christians can lose their effectiveness mm. or their ability to be effective in every area of society because of a lack of purity or a co-mingling with the people of this world. Or even mm. as we look at the light uh, parable or uh, analogy in a moment, we see that you know this idea of hiding who we are, that though salt can never really become unsalty, the purity of salt or its impurity can limit the amount of uses that it can have where, yeah, you're not going to put dirty road salt on your steak in a fancy restaurant. Yeah, with that distinction in mind, uh, you know, the, the purity of salt and, and when it gets intermingled with different things and it becomes this salt that gets trampled underfoot or thrown onto the road, uh, he, Jesus, transitions into the second uh, you are statement uh, addressing identity here. You are the light of the world. And so could you do this uh, a similar thing that you did with the salt analogy? Could you take us on a tour of what the people in the first century would have heard when they were told that you are the light of the word or light of the world, excuse me. And the good thing about this one is there's a lot more biblical data to support 
an idea of what they would have heard when the, when they were told they are the light of the world. And then, could you tell us how salt and light are related here? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of biblical imagery around light, and I think I, I have not done an exhaustive study on light imagery. The scriptures, <laughs> maybe you have, and you can fill us in in a moment. But the ones that come to mind quickly are. Lights, especially stars in the Old Testament, especially in apocryphal literature, refers to rulers. You know, even think of like Satan as like the morning star, right? Mm. Like this ruler of the earth. We think of, you know, we flash forward in the same genre to Revelation and we see that in the kingdom there is no sun because God himself is the light. And so uh, we think of John's writings where he talks about how uh, either Jesus is the light of the world or God dwells in an approachable light or, you know, the Old Testament where God is so glorious, no one can approach him, and light and fire and these images surround him. So there's so many biblical pictures of the revelation of God, the power of God, rulership, importance. Uh, all of that is tied in with light. But then at an organic level, especially as Jesus transitions to start talking about cities on a hill, you wonder kind of how that would affect the context. You know, we don't know if the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think it was during the day or at night, but if it was at night, which I don't think it was, but if it was at night, standing at the northern tip of Galilee in Capernaum, you would be able to look down to your right and see Nazareth up on top of a hill. You'd be able mm -hmm. to look down a little bit less to the right. You'd see Tiberias, a big city. And those cities are, you know, Nazareth is right around the corner, like it's maybe a five, eight mile walk. Tiberius might be 15 miles away, like as the crow flies, but you would see it clear as day because a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Right. Uh, hmm. That's a small light, even a single lamppost at the top of the, the bluff there in Nazareth, you would not be able to miss it from Capernaum because light shines and the darkness does not overcome it, to quote John. Um, so I do think there's a little bit of, you know, I, I, I wonder how much are they thinking about biblical imagery mm -hmm. and how much in this organic Sermon on the Mount setting are they just looking around and thinking about, you know, the cities on the hills surrounding the kind of the northern region of Galilee and uh, the fact that they can see them even in the dead of night from anywhere on that lake. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You just hit on something that I noticed when I was reading this. Like your mind is like, okay, I'm ready to think about light now. And then immediately after that, it just transitions to, oh yeah, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. But I think the way you explained it of, okay, if you're on the mount with Jesus right there and you're looking to those two cities and you see that the, the cities on the hill can't be hidden because there's a light there and it, it carries on to the next passage in verse 15, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, almost like that city on the hill image that you just painted and it gives light to everyone in the house and you know i've been thinking a lot about the sermon on the mount mainly because it is growing increasingly difficult to come up with skeptic questions <laughs> wait why why is it hard to think of a skeptic question on the sermon on the mount i don't know it's just a little bit more difficult a little bit more challenging I'm i feel to... like I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna throw this out there <laughs> Most of the skeptics that I've talked to, they're like, I don't believe in religion, I don't believe in Jesus, but I do love the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Right. So it could be like, how are you going to argue with this stuff? Yeah, that, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, people resonate with this so deeply that they don't even know. And yet, there always is a good skeptic question there's, out there. There's one hiding deep within the you surface know, there. One of the things we talk about in one of our classes that, that I'm a part of, we, we, we call it the Go Project. 
And it's all about going into our community. And basically what we try to learn is what does our community feel like right now? What is, what's the prevailing thought of the community? And uh, so far in the past 100, 150 years, we've seen this progression from the era of the scientific um, community developing uh, something called modernism, where they thought, yeah, now that we have scientific material and, and tools, we can find the truth about everything. We, can, we have empirical data to find the truth. And that kind of backfired. And as we saw people grow a little bit more hopeless of, of finding the truth on their own, you ended up in the post-modern era where people were just like, you know what, maybe we were wrong. Maybe there really is no truth. And maybe uh, everybody that presents truth is just skeptical, or, or not skeptical, but maybe they have an agenda behind it. Maybe the church presenting themselves as the arbiter of truth is just, you know, arrogance. And so when I read a passage like this, like, you're not supposed to let a light and, and put it under a bowl. Instead, you're supposed to put it on a stand, and it gives light to the entire house. I think from the skeptical angle, I think immediately of arrogance. I think who are Christians to say that they are the light? Who are Christians that they are the ones that ought to be put on a pedestal? Who are Christians that think they are the city on the hill? Who are Christians that, you know, have this idea that they should inform how I should live? All these different claims of Christians, this passage just feels incredibly arrogant to present the truth. So, so what would you say to a skeptic that, that approaches thoughts about Christianity in that light? And maybe also speak to the Christians uh, who may have that fear going into living a life like a light, and maybe they're putting bowls on their light themselves. I think what I would say to the skeptic, first of all, who says, who are Christians to say that we are the light of the world? I'd say, well, actually, Jesus is the one who said that, right? <laughs> so let's start with the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that you, skeptic, love. And right. those are Jesus' words. And then I would move to bring some compassion. I would say, let, let's be reminded that these are Jesus' words to the marginalized of society and to the disciples, saying, this is not because you're powerful. This is not because you're smarter than anybody else. This is not because you're better than anybody else. You are poor in spirit and meek and all the rest. And yet you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Even... Let's remind the skeptic that before he says, you are the light, he says, you are the salt, right? So he's mm. already humbled us by saying, you are small, insignificant, unassuming, and yet have an amazing role to play in the success of this world. And then I'd move to the light, the light example, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And, and I would say, you know, it's, it's interesting, like, I'm sure there are times, right? A movie star puts some mansion on the top of a hill and lights <laughs> it all up. And it's like, okay, we get it you're rich. But I would guess that as you look towards Capernaum from a distance, or you look over at the land of the Gadarenes, or you look at Tiberias, or you look at Nazareth, and you see these cities on hills, even if they are like Tiberias, a big, and a big well-established city, or Jerusalem, which is the ultimate city on a hill in that context of, you know, walking up to Jerusalem would be kind of like walking up from Tracy up the Altamont to the top of the Altamont Pass. Imagine there was a mega city on the top of that. And after a long journey, you see the lights of the city, right? That is not an arrogant image. That is an image that, that shows safety, mm. security, 
the light provides that safety where, uh, you know, a dark city like Gotham is a city full of crime and, right. and fear, right? But a city that's lit up well, it means that there's, it, there's safety to where everything is exposed. Even when we look at uh, analogies of sin in the Bible, light is this idea that it's the great illuminator of darkness. And so all of those images around a city and light shows that, hey, this is a place of refuge. This is a place where there is safety. This is a place where you can come inside the walls. And sure, there's a little bit of the dialectic of some people are not allowed to enter. Some people are allowed to enter. But I don't even sense that in this analogy. It feels like Jesus is saying more like you as my people, you are a place of refuge. You are a place of safety. You are a place that is welcoming. You are a place that if someone encounters you, they can find refuge within the safety of your walls. So it doesn't feel like an arrogant image to me at all. If anything, it, it feels like a reminder that you are to be a place of hospitality mm. so that the weary traveler can come and find a place to rest. That doesn't feel arrogant to me at all. I think one of the things that keeps popping up in a lot of even the past couple months in, in our messages is the idea that Jesus was speaking to y'all you know, the, the second person plural that kind of gets buried in our English translation where it, it mentions you, you, you. And yet, uh, you know, even you bringing up that image of the city on a hill as one of safety, as one of refuge. And I'm wondering, uh, what would you say to the people out there that have read for so long for their entire lives about, you know, this passage about their witness, their evangelism, their, you know, own personal lifestyle in the world as that lamp that, that is being shown and that, you know, you don't want to hide it under a bushel. You know, <laughs> we had the debate of whether we were going to sing the song on, mm -hmm. on Sunday, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, for so long, a lot of people have read this in a personal light. Uh, how does the city on the hill analogy help us think differently about that? I think on one hand, it, it expands it. So we know, hey, as the community of faith, we are to be a place that, that is a refuge for those who are experiencing brokenness and lifelessness and, and a need for a savior, and, and we are a place to give hospitality to those folks. I don't think it disqualifies the singular. Like I do think uh, there's enough biblical evidence to, to say that we are all people who are carriers of the Holy Spirit within us as individuals as right. well. And... And sure, there's a there's a risk that the community would put the light under a bowl and not let it shine. Right. I think the biggest reason we think about this individualistically is because most of the time we're immediately convicted with where we as individuals hide our light under a bowl and make and let it don't let it shine. You know, where and Jesus is saying you're acting contrary to your nature. Like you are a shiny person, right? You are someone who carries the light of the gospel wherever you go. It's just gonna come out of your pores. So what are you trying to do? You're trying so hard not to let anyone know that you carry this light within you. What are you doing, man? Like, that's not what light's for. Like, let it shine, man. Let mm. your, you know, let your Christian identity shine forth from within you. So I would say he does expand that to the community of faith. Like our church is literally on a hill. It right. can't be hidden. And so we've been talking a lot about how do we move from a reputation in the community where we're the haunted house on the hill mm -hmm. with the lights turned off and nobody wants to come to, to a city on a hill that's a place like a lighthouse. Say, come on up. All are welcome here. Mm -hmm. Come and find refuge in the shadow of God's wings in this place. So there's definitely a community application 
But I think part of the reason we we are tempted to make it individualistic is because that's where our minds immediately go to, oh, geez, like I do hide it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just been so fascinating that that dynamic between your personal life and the community life. And yeah, it's just so prevalent in the last couple of messages. And it leads to the, the final verse of this section, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the thing that you pointed out is uh, this is where we meet our first imperative. And so we've seen uh, Jesus at addressing our identity by saying, you are the salt, you are the light. And every time he gives those identity pieces, he then says, okay, now out of that, let your light shine before others. And so as you read this final passage in this section, uh, what would be your encouragement to, to people who legitimately feel like their their lights have been hidden under a bowl and, and may f- even feel pressure to keep it that way, what would be your encouragement to, to let your light shine? Even the, the way that's phrased, let your light shine. How does that speak into our daily lives at Three Crosses? Yeah, the first thing I thought when you read the, the scripture there is kind of back to what we just talked about, this community picture of it, that He's, you know, we're looking around in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, it's all of us together. We all have these lights within us and we as a community let it shine. So there's solidarity in the faith community. And I think there are some individual cases where as a community, people encounter the light and it's brilliant. And whether it's they come up to the church and experience that, or they come to our small group where Christians are gathered intentionally or out in the world. I was thinking the uh, you know, where Monday nights, a bunch of us play on a intramural soccer team. Mm-hmm. And I started the team with a bunch of different parents from my kids' soccer teams, just trying to connect with folks who are in the real world, not Christian folks. But uh, we needed more players. So I invited a ton of folks from church on our staff and <laughs> folks that we know, hey, we want you to join our team. And so we've got this team that's like 50% believers from our church and 50% non-believers from, you know, all over the place and a couple of Christians from other churches. And, uh, and I, I talked to somebody who's part of our church, whose neighbors on our team, who's not a believing person. And he said, man, my neighbor loves the soccer team. She's mm-hmm. like, just hanging out with all of the people from our church. Mm-hmm. She's like, there's just some joy there. It's fun. She, started, she said she went to our church website because she wanted to see what kind of place this was because it's so fun hanging out with these Christians, <laughs> right? I'm thinking like, all right, we're salty, we're light, right? <laughs> um, it's like the joy of the Lord is among us. We weren't sitting around singing worship songs. We're sitting around like yelling at each other and saying like, great job, come on, let's sub out. You know, we're playing soccer, right? <laughs> but just the joy of the Lord kind of comes out in those contexts. Right. So that's a community response. So part of it's like, hey, live out like your joyful Christian faith, right? The, the wit aspect of what Pliny says about saltiness, like be an, like an awesome person in Christian community in the world, but I do think that, like I said, the, I think the individual ast- individualistic aspect of it is real, where mm-hmm. you think about how this would have played out in Jesus' day, and the church, as they let their light shine, it's not really like they had big worship services, although they did. It would mostly happen, these good works he talks about, where Christians would go and they would care for the sick, right? There'd be a plague, and the Christians were the ones who would put themselves at risk and catch the disease and even die to serve their neighbors when even some of the medical professionals wouldn't go in, right? So that, and that's not like a big community of Christians, that's individual Christians going to their individual neighbors. 
But as a whole, the light is going out and they're serving mm. the world and the light is shining through the individual act of compassion. I think of Christians in the first century who had compassion for life and they would see uh, these infants who were mm. unwanted and discarded. They would, in those days, they would take children that were unwanted pregnancies, they would bring them to full term and then they'd cast them into the garbage dump. And the Christians as individuals, wasn't like a whole church would go arm in arm and walk through the dumps. Individual Christians would hear the crying, they'd go down to the dumps, they'd rescue the babies, they'd bring them into their families, they would adopt them. So these are individual Christians, but who are part of a fabric of the entire church around the world. And so I do think there's, I guess my encouragement for us is that what Jesus is saying is it is powerful to live out a life of compassion and service and good works, even as an individual, knowing that you're part of a network of believers, especially when you're part of the local church. Um, but even your individual actions of caring well for your neighbor, asking them how they're doing, praying for someone in need at work, uh, taking someone's trash out, like Ryan mentioned a few weeks ago, whatever it is, like caring for someone who's sick, being a fun soccer team, all of the above, uh, living out uh, in integrous Christian faith in the community alone and together is a beautiful way where people say there's something different about these people and they get to see the light, a glimpse of the light that's within us. And so I think the you know, part of it is lean into what the Spirit's calling you to do when it's scary, but also lean into the Spirit, what the Spirit's calling you to do when it's fun. When you're like, man, I want to invite my neighbor to my Super Bowl party. Mm. Like that is a that is a way where you can let your light shine and they get to come over and see there's something different about these households. They celebrate differently than everyone else or they're just good people and I like them, whatever it is. That's saltiness, that's light. And sometimes it's gospel sharing, but the context he says here is our good works is when we do what God has prepared for us to do in this world, when we're useful like salt in one of the thousand applications of saltiness, we are letting the light of the gospel shine from within us. Uh, we unleash it. And so that's the interesting thing about light. You and I kind of wrestled with, it's funny, that Greek verb, uh, let your light shine, really literally probably means shine your light. But the English translation, let it shine, is more kind of dealing with the nature of light that like a lamp doesn't do anything, right? Lamps mm -hmm. don't have volition. Lamps have a bulb on top of them or a flame on top of them, and they're just, just a carrier of something yeah. that light just light just expands. That's what it does. It shines into the darkness. And so that's part of it. It's like you can't really shine your light. You can hide and cover and blow out your light. Right. Or you can get out of the way and just let it shine. And mm. uh, I think that's what Jesus gives us the freedom to do is to drop the anxiety drop the pretense, even drop the pressure, and just go be your transforming self in the world and trust that the Spirit of God will work through you to bring blessing to the world outside our doors and to draw people to himself as they glorify our Father in heaven. Yeah, I love how that ends there. Uh, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, we get to see Jesus, or restart that. We get to see God mentioned as Father 17 different times in the Sermon on the Mount and wow. seven instances with the modifier of in heaven. And so it's just all the, always that constant reminder of uh, living for that kingdom of heaven, that, that one we started off with in the Beatitudes of theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's just a reminder of, of who it's all for. And so, Pastor Danny, I can only think of one more thing to say, and it's uh, this. If you're listening, don't let Satan... Blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. I thought about singing it right there. <laughs>
I'll let you guys get it stuck in your own heads as you uh, go along your day. If you don't know what we're referring to, it's a famous uh, nursery rhyme. I didn't grow up in church, but even I knew that one. Yeah, I think maybe from The Simpsons. I think the. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. This is a light of mine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. I'm gonna let it shine. All right. We'll see you next week.